Welcome to Question Period. I'm Joyce Napier. Today on the program, Canadian outbreak. We can anticipate that there will be uh, an outbreak in one of our Canadian communities. I think this is, as I said, a virus that knows no borders and that is growing. Canadian coronavirus cases continue to climb. Is it only a matter of time before Canada becomes a hot spot for the virus? And can our already strained healthcare system handle the added burden? Economic Development Minister and member of the new Cabinet Committee on Coronavirus, Melanie Joly, is here with the answers. Plus, opposition MPs are here to debate. Then, economic impact. We're continuing to work extremely hard to, uh, to counter the impacts on our economy that the coronavirus will be bringing. Financial markets around the world have slowed as the coronavirus continues to shutter businesses and schools in China, Japan and now Italy. Will the global uncertainty translate into a recession here at home? How can the federal government minimize the fiscal shock? Former Finance Minister John Manley weighs in on the scrum, plus the race is on. Yeah, I want to be a voice, a strong conservative voice from Quebec that is able to uh, speak to Canadians uh, in both official languages and make sure that we bring that generational change that is needed in our party. The cast of characters seeking to be the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada has been set. But is the ending already a foregone conclusion? Candidate Rudy Hosny is here on whether he really stands a chance and what he brings to the table as the only Quebecer in the race. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. Canada's healthcare system is already strained with long wait times in emergency rooms and for surgeries, not enough hospital beds and a lack of family doctors. New cases of coronavirus keep popping up across the country as the government tries to prepare for a possible pandemic. Could a coronavirus outbreak cause an overburdened system to break? And with each province having its own separate system, will Canadians across the country have access to the same level of care? Let's find out. Joining me now from Montreal is Economic Development Minister and member of the new Cabinet Committee on Coronavirus, Mélanie Joly. Madame Joly, thank you so much for being there. It's nice to see you. I want to go to the Special Cabinet Committee on Coronavirus. It met for mm -hmm. the first time this week. What exactly is the purpose, the objective of this committee? And why not include other parties? Well, the idea is to make sure that we have a, a, a whole-of-government approach. Uh, we're ready as a country to face this issue. We have a universal public health system, one of the best health systems in the world, uh, and we need to be working on many fronts, making sure that our public health authorities have the tools, the resources, uh, at the same time that we are working with our provinces and territories to coordinate that, and meanwhile, uh, really mitigating the economic impacts of this virus spreading across Canada. And that's my job as Economic Development Minister that is also in charge of the tourism sector, is to see what are the impacts and how we can, re we can really act on, on that front. What, what are you seeing on the tourism front? I know it's difficult, I understand it's difficult to measure the impact of something. It's like standing on the shore and looking, waiting for the invader, don't know how many ships, don't know how this will hit, but how will this impact, for instance, um, tourism? 
Mm -hmm. Well, we know that one of the industries that will be more most impacted and it has already started to be impacted is the tourism sector. Uh, I was in Vancouver and Victoria uh, over the last days and I saw the impact of Chinese tourism uh, being down in the region. So to give you an example, every year Chinese tourists just themselves uh, spend around two million dollars, uh, two billion dollars, sorry, in their country. Uh, we forecast that because of the fact that there's uh, a, a really a, a downturn in terms of Chinese tourists in the country, uh, that there will be a loss of 550 million dollars uh, by June of 2020. So that's for the the first part of 2020. Now, as Europe is uh, and Italy, France, Germany are struggling with new cases. We know that airline carriers will be impacted. Uh, and to give you just an example, in Vancouver, the duty-free boutique uh, revenues are down by 50%. So uh, that's just uh, anecdotal information. But meanwhile, uh, it is like you're saying, understanding a bit more what is happening, gathering the information. I have met with Destination Canada, uh, which is the agency in charge of the promotion of tourism uh, all around the world for Canada, as well as uh, I had good conversations with all the ministers of tourism across the country. Now, we know on Friday the finance minister said that in his upcoming budget there would be a, a bigger contingency fund. But, you know, there are few details about an economic response, so no, no specific budgets except for the $27 million in research. No specific, um, you know, sort of, we don't know what the health response uh, will, will be. Uh, will you send more budgets to hospitals? You know, the Brits have released a 27-page document with specifics on preparedness. The U.S. has adopted an $8.3 billion special budget. And, and, and it seems that we, we are reassured by, by, by our ministers. Um, you know, we're informed. We, we, we get updates. But we don't. There's a lack of detail. Uh, is there going to be a package, for instance, in, in, for the tourism industry in Canada? Is there a package that you are preparing to help certain industries? Well, we're looking at short, medium term and longer term solutions. Uh, so, for example, short term, we know that uh, in terms of the tourism sector, uh, our marketing dollars that usually go to the Chinese market, uh, w the idea is to move them to make sure that we can support more domestic tourism uh, across the country. And to our listeners right now, Joyce, I, I must say to Canadians watching us, uh, if you're planning to, uh, to, to your vacations, well, please think of Canada because we have a big and beautiful country and it is the best way to support our small and medium-sized businesses all across the country by traveling it and, and discovering it. So that's for short term. Medium term, uh, obviously the budget will be coming up. Uh, we know that the Bank of Canada has, uh, has reduced its key indicators by half a point. Uh, that's one measure that our central bank has, has taken. At the same time, uh, we know also that uh, the people that will be going into quarantine will be compensated and the Minister of Finance is still having conversations with the G7 ministers and uh, at the same time, finance ministers and at the same time with his provincial and territorial counterparts to have the right reaction. And finally, I must say that uh, we'll be uh, ready to bounce back because the tourism sector is one of the most resilient sectors in, uh, in the world. Uh, last year was our best year ever, 22.1 million international tourists 
coming to Canada, uh, but we want to be ready and we know that when this calms down, our sector will be uh, ready to offer the best of our country to international tra travelers and also to, to Canadians. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we all hope to get to that. But on Thursday, Canadian authorities warned international travel was risky and asked Canadians, you know, to consider, all Canadians, uh, to consider staying home. As you said, I mean, you are the tourism minister, Canadian tourism, uh, mm -hmm. Canadians spending Canadian dollars, that's uh, pretty good. Uh, but is it time to shut the border to travelers from risky areas following the example, for instance, of Australia and the United States? Is it time? Will it make Canadians safer? See, we have an approach in Canada that uh, we follow what the best experts and public health officials are telling us. Uh, Dr. Tam, our chief public health officer, has been on this and has been coordinating also with the World Health Ar uh, Organization to see what's the best way to, uh, to, to contain uh, the virus and its evolution and to counter it. Uh, and what we know, what the data shows us, is the best way to contain it is actually through information. And so we're following uh, this, this advice. Uh, we're increasing information to all travelers at all our ports of entry. We think uh, that meanwhile, uh, this is the best way to, to uh, go ahead and, and coordinate. So this cabinet committee, is it bracing itself for a recession? Well, we know that uh, the indicators uh, for Canada's economy were good. Uh, at the same time, our central bank has said that there would be impacts uh, of the coronavirus on our economy. At the same time, we have the fiscal capacity to act and mitigate uh, economic impacts. The Minister of Finance on Friday said that there were two uh, industries that were more impacted, the tourism sector as we talked about, but also uh, the energy sector since there's a drop in oil prices. Uh, and we are following this while preparing uh, to take measures as appropriate to make sure at the end of the day that uh, we still continue to have a, a strong economy, but mainly I would say that we keep our Canadians safe and sound. Minister Melanie Jolie in Montreal, thank you so much for spending this time with us. Thank you, Jake. Coming up, as the coronavirus continues to spread around the world, some countries like the U.S. and Australia have closed their borders to foreigners coming from outbreak zones. Is it time for Canada to do the same? And what other measures should the government take to keep you safe? Opposition MPs have their say next. Stay right here with us at Question Period. As we see this virus spread around the world, less and less will it be about borders and more and more will it be about what communities are doing themselves to protect citizens and, and prevent the spread of the disease. As the number of confirmed cases of coronavirus continues to rise around the world, the Prime Minister won't say if his government will close Canadian borders to mitigate the spread. The United States and Australia have already banned foreigners arriving from impacted countries like China and Iran. But so far, the Canadian government says the best approach is for people to take precautions, like monitoring travel advisories, following the advice of their local health authorities, and regularly washing their hands. Also, authorities are suggesting Canadians avoid body contact, hugging, kissing, shaking hands. Sad. 
Officials are also relying on Canadians to self-isolate if they're returning from China's Hubei province or Iran. So is the government doing enough to keep you safe or should it follow the approach of its allies? Let's bring in opposition MPs to find out. Matt Chenaru is the conservative health critic and Laurel Collins is an NDP MP from British Columbia. Hello to both of you. Uh, Matt Chenaru, let me start with you. Do you think it's time for Canada to close itself off from travelers arriving from places where the disease is widespread? Well, thanks for having me on, Joyce. Uh, I, I think what we, we all know that this, this virus knows no borders. Uh, however, we, we also, what we don't know, though, is what the possible outbreak pandemic plan is from this government. So our, our, our critique wouldn't necessarily be, be, be do all the things that, uh, that you mentioned. It would be tell us what your plan is so then more Canadians know what, uh, what, what, that, what that means. So, for example, you know, a, a more rigorous screening process at the borders, uh, mandatory self-quarantine, if you're traveling from one of these countries, potentially shutting down flights in going and outgoing from these countries as well, are all things I think that are on the table. But without knowing what the, the pandemic plan is, really leaves, leaves us as an opposition at a disadvantage as to what are the most effective ways to control this virus. Laurel Collin, I'm curious uh, you know, about what the NDP's position is on that. Is it time to close the border to travelers who are coming from you know, sort of a crisis areas? You know, we want to make sure that there are thorough screening processes at the borders. This is a rapidly evolving situation. So what we need is clear, measured communication from our government about what the plan is, uh, what concrete actions they're taking. You know, having our health minister tell Canadians to stockpile um, supplies and then, you know, a few days later, for the government to say they've got it kind of under control, they're forming a cabinet committee. You know, Canadians are concerned and they want to know that our government has a plan to address this if it does um, actually become a larger outbreak. And we need to know that there are going to be provisions also put in place for workers who are impacted. We know that uh, the government has asked folks to self-isolate for people who don't have paid sick leave, it makes it very difficult. In order for us to actually support uh, the Canadians who are going to be impacted by this and make sure they can make the responsible choice to stay home, uh, we need a concrete plan that protects workers, that supports Canadians and really gives us up-to-date information about what's happening on the ground. Because we do hear reassuring words from the government, but not many specifics on budgets, for instance, cost or strategy. The U.S. this week, for example, announced an $8.3 billion contingency fund for coronavirus. Virus. In Britain, the government has issued a 27-page document, a, a preparedness plan. Does the government here need to be, and I hear from both of you that they do, but what specifics, uh, Matt, would you like to see or hear from the government? Yeah, just to correct the, the record a little bit. I don't believe that the, the minister actually said stockpile. However, that was what the, the, the headlines in, came out as, is that we, we now see more masks going off the shelves in, in Edmonton here. Hand sanitizer, is, it's, it's hard to find. Uh, toilet paper at, at the, the local Costco's. All of these things are as a result of what the, uh, the, the minister has said, but ultimately didn't uh, say either. So we, they, they've struck a cabinet committee, which we certainly welcome. 
Uh, however, it took him six weeks from the first confirmed case in, in Canada. Uh, you, you look back at the H1N1 uh, uh, virus in, in, in 2009, the, uh, the, there was a, a daily briefings provided to the opposition at the time uh, under the, the Conservative government uh, shortly after the first case uh, in, uh, in, 2000, in January 2009. So without, without being able to, to have that information, and it, it really does seem that this government is, is keeping it it's somewhat secret and, and a, a secretive approach to what their actual plan is, which some could question, well, perhaps they don't have a plan then, which I, I would like to think that, that that's not the, the case. Uh, however, if, if this is, uh, if we're being left in the dark as, as opposition and quite frankly as Canadians, I think there's a lot of questions that are going unanswered right now. Uh, Laurel, you know, provincial health authorities, uh, do you think they're prepared if the virus reaches a pandemic level? You know, we have an uneven health care system across this country. There are some remote areas, indigenous and Inuit communities are not well served uh, by our system. What would you do for them? I mean, I think the my conservative colleague mentioned the H1N1 uh, event and that disproportionately impacted indigenous communities you know as a start I would like to see uh, the indigenous services um, uh, a representative for indigenous services on the cabinet committee uh, the fact that that was omitted I think is kind of a glaring uh, error and then you know we want to make sure that our healthcare professionals are also supported. You know, we need federal safety protocols that are going to protect our healthcare workers so that they can protect us. That's unfortunately all the time we have. Thank you, Matt Jenneru and Laurel Collins. Coming up, there's only one Quebec francophone running to be the next conservative leader, but can he shore up enough support outside of his own province to beat front runners Peter McKay and Aaron O'Toole? We'll find out when Conservative Leadership candidate Rudy Husney joins us next. Stay with us on Question Period. Welcome back to Question Period. The deadline to enter the Conservative Leadership race has come and gone, and there's only one Quebecer vying for the top job. Rudy Husney, a former senior advisor in Stephen Harper's government, is among the eight candidates. But can the man who ran twice for a seat in Parliament and lost convince party faithful to choose him as Andrew Scheer's replacement? And what sets him apart from the political pack, including heavyweights like Peter McKay and Aaron O'Toole? Let's find out. Joining me now is Conservative leadership candidate Rudy Husney. Good to see you, Rudy. Good morning. Um, let me ask you this, just because you ran twice, you lost, you are, you know, what we call a, a backroom uh, person, a long-time conservative. Why are you running? I'm running because I want to be a strong conservative voice from Quebec. Yes, I ran twice, but I ran against Thomas Mulcair because I wanted to be able to debate both in French and in English and that we had strong conservative candidates all over the country. What I promise is that I, I think that our vision as conservative should be more than just being tough on crime or promising smaller government or promising lower taxes. We need to pass that. We need to grow our base. We need to have a positive conservative vision to Quebecers, but also to all Canadians so they can get behind us so we can form government. We need to talk about things that people care and things that make their life easier. That's the voice I want to bring in this campaign. Talk about e-government talk about innovation, talk about how we deliver services for the government.
government, but also talk about cybersecurity. I'm from Quebec. We had a huge data breach. We need to talk about things that people are worried about, but more than our traditional message of tough on crime or smaller government, because the old playbook is not going to work again. We need to turn the page, focus on the future, and really tell Canadians a very positive conservative message. That's the voice I want to be, and that's what I'm going to bring in this race. I want to bring in social issues because you've said that you are in favor of same sex marriage. You yes. said you would walk in a pride parade. Yes. Um, not only walk, I mean, I've been, it's not something that I've just decided. That's something that it's been with me all the time. I mean, this is for me something that are debates that are in the past and I've grown up and I've worked uh, uh, under that. And for me, there's, there's not even, a, I don't understand why we're still talking about that in 2020. But you're the only Francophone in the race. Yes. Um, how do you think you will appeal to voters in other provinces? I'm a Francophone, yes, but I'm also bilingual. So I think I bring that power to being able to communicate to all Canadians. I've said, for example, that I want to talk about energy. I can do it in Quebec, to Quebecers directly in French, because we need to have a real conversation about energy. But also, I know that in Alberta and Saskatchewan, that they are struggling. They need to know that there's at least a Quebecer in this race who have their back, who's going to say that, the, that we are not only going to support them, but we need to take decisions and review programs to make sure that we support them because they are struggling. I want to talk about your party right now. What do you think could be improved? In other words, what is wrong with your party right now? You, you almost won, but you didn't in the last federal election. What yes. do you need? What, what we need is to have a real positive conservative vision, meaning that we have to tell Canadians what we're going to do to help them. Just attacking Justin Trudeau is not going to do the trick. That's why I committed that I will not attack Justin Trudeau during this campaign. What we need to tell Canadians, and I think Canadians are ready to get behind us, if we tell them exactly what we're going to do, which is not even make their life cheaper but make their life easier, which is what they care about. How every day mom and dad and everyone can have services from the government easier and we can simplify their life because that's what they want to hear. They don't want us to fight. They don't want us only to have our traditional message because people already know that we're good managers <coughs> on the economy. They believe in us conservative to manage the economy, but they need more than that to get behind us. And I don't want to replay the 2015 or the 2019 campaign. That's why I'm running, because I want to make sure that people can see that there's a generational change in our party and to get behind us so we can win. So a lot of your of, of the candidates are against the carbon tax. Mm -hmm. um, and Andrew Scheer was criticized for really his lack of policy on, on the environment. What would you do for the environment? Look, I am from Quebec. <coughs> Obviously, in Quebec, we have cap and trade. I want provinces to be able to have their own program. I don't believe that Ottawa knows best, and I don't believe that it's one size fits all. As you know, in certain provinces, there is a price on carbon. There is a price on carbon in Quebec. I just don't believe in a carbon tax. But what I certainly believe is that we need, for now, to have a transition and go forward a transition. But at the same time, we need to champion energy. As long as Canadians put energy and oil in their tank, I want it to be Canadian energy. And that's what I'm advocating 
But at the same time, let's have a transition, look at technologies, look at how we can reduce green gas emission, but we cannot have right now large projects like LNG in Quebec or oil and gas in Alberta being shut down just because we're sending the message that Canada is not open for business. We cannot have that. We need to send a clear message that yes, we want transition, but right now we need to stand with Alberta and Saskatchewan. And as a Quebecer, I want to make sure I have Canadian energy in my car because for the moment I'm still running in a car that has oil. But, but Quebecers are against those pipelines, first off. And, and, and secondly, what not, are you doing with the indigenous communities who are opposing? I mean, you're seeing what's happening now. Mm -hmm. um, what would you do to stop that and to start these projects going, to look, get them going? Look, I've, I've had the opportunity to travel all across Canada, even when I was in government. If there's one thing I know, is that the first employer for First Nation and Indigenous community and in rural and remote community is actually the resource sector. They are the one providing jobs and opportunity and prosperity. So I don't believe that it's true that First Nations are against those projects because they are the larger employees. And as you know, there's a large community who have supported those projects. So I don't want to pit one side against the other, but we need to have national leadership. We have to talk to provinces and to First Nation to say, let's together have a partnership so we can share the prosperity. But at the same time, we need to get our resources out to Canadians. We cannot afford continue to import oil and gas in this country. And just to say, LNG and oil and gas is energy at the end of the day. So I know LNG, some people like this acronym. It's better, it's more popular. But at the end of the day, it's a pipeline. And we need to make sure that we have propane, gas, oil and gas, diesel in remote communities. We have Canadian energy. What, that's what I want. And that's the conversation because I don't believe in Quebec. We really had a fact-based conversation about it. Rudy Hosny, Conservative candidate, thanks so much. Thank you, thank you, Joyce. Coming up, bracing for impact. How can the federal government budget for the coronavirus? The Scrum is up next with former Deputy Prime Minister John Manley. Stay right here with Question Period. We have already seen global economic and supply chain disruption and it's important that Canada be prepared for the effects of this new virus beyond those of health. Financial markets around the world are taking a hit as fear and uncertainty about the coronavirus sets in. Businesses and schools have been closed in China for weeks, with Italy now starting to follow suit. How is this impacting Canada's bottom line and should the federal government be giving provinces more money for frontline health services that could be affected by an outbreak. Let's bring in the Scrum to find out. Annie Bergeron-Oliver is a reporter for CTV News. Tonda McCharles is a senior reporter with the Toronto Star. Robert Fife is the Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Globe and Mail. And our special guest this round is former Deputy Prime Minister and former Finance Minister John Manley. Hello, good morning good to morning. all of you. We've got a lot of stuff to talk about. I want to wow. start with you, John Manley, and you know, start with a list of kind of unfortunate events. So, <laughs> coronavirus, uncertainty over indigenous rights, uncertainty over co coastal gas link, and why not? Let's throw TMX in there. Warren Buffett, who pulled a $4 billion investment from a gas plant project in Quebec's Saguenay region, you know, the Bank of Canada lowering its rate to sort of try to soften that impact. Is there any good news for the Canadian economy? 
<laughs> it's pretty hard to find it in that pile. Uh, and you're right, uh, it's a very challenging time. And the most difficult thing, if I were back in, in the finance portfolio, which I actually was during SARS, was would be how do you put a pin in the numbers? You're going to have a big range of possible outcomes, particularly in terms of government revenue, because we don't know yet how big the impact will be. This may just blow through, which in effect SARS did, except for very localized effect in the tourism sector in Toronto. Or it may be, um, I don't want to say catastrophic, I'd say severe uh, in the Canadian economy. And ministers trying to make a budget. How do you do it when you don't know what your income is going to be? You know, it's very interesting because the Canadian business community are saying to the finance minister, look, I know you want to do an environmental climate change budget. Hold off on this now because we don't know what the impact of coronavirus is going to have on the economy. We've also had the economic blockade, which has really caused a significant harm to the Canadian economy. So yeah, let's we can't hold. even quantify that. We yet. can't the, quantify the that. So why don't we said. just hold off on that? What we but it doesn't look like the, the minister is going to do that. On Friday, he had a news conference. All he was saying is that we're going to have a prudent budget, which sounded to me like he's still going to go ahead with the budget. But he's saying there will be a little more in the contingency fund, a little more than the th right now it's always $3 billion. So I don't know how much more because this government is not very good at providing details on anything. No, exactly, Tona. And you and I were at that press conference this week with the health minister, mm -hmm. the chief medical officer. It's, it's lacking in detail. It is lacking in detail. And um, I would say that, you know, at the outset of this, uh, several weeks ago, their communications have been great and informing people how they were going to deal with the Canadians abroad, how they were going to deal with them when they came in quarantine here. But as the uh, outbreak has progressed into Canada and when the numbers are growing daily, um, I find that there's a shyness now in the government to share detail about their readiness plans. Uh, actually, what is the capacity in Canada, hospital-wise, in the health system? How many beds do we need? How many ventilators? Where they're at on all of that. And so I find that there's um, this resorting to the public health message, the public service announcement every time, wash your hands, wash your hands, sneeze into your sleeve. That's great. But what is the government doing to increase the hospital's capacity to deal with this? How are we going to manage when there's a surge in cases and say there have to be more healthcare workers on the front lines dealing with very intensive critical cases? They right now are very stretched, the hospitals are. And so that's maybe one thing concrete they could do in a budget coming up. Throw money at hospitals right now. They need it. You were talking about good news. We did see that the job numbers came out on Friday and there were tens of thousands of jobs created, which experts are saying points to the fact that we're starting at probably a slightly better space than we could have several months ago. However, what I think the government needs to do is talk to businesses and try to produce some type of confidence for them. Because we have to think about this as the markets are crashing, as the economy is not doing well, businesses are going to want to lay people off and change their manufacturing and cut costs. But the problem is that this uncertainty with the virus, as we're all talking about, we could be in a position where in six months, time, those employers are not available to go to work. And what will the government do then? There's also some experts that are talking about helicopter money that we might have to pay people to stay home. Because I think what a lot of people are forgetting about this is there are a lot of lower income people who can't afford to not go to work for two or three weeks if they have a cough. They can't afford to. And what happens? And if we're in a case where those lower income workers are now losing their jobs, then that is even worse for the federal government. Well, we asked that question to Christian mm -hmm. Freeland at the news conference. What will you do to those uninsured people, to those people who will have to take time off work, will have to self-quarantine, and will not get paid? Well, contrast that with the 
with the Americans, if I may say. So they yes. put uh, $8.3 billion to, to help the states and municipalities cope with the coronavirus. And because, as we know, the provinces are financially strapped in the healthcare system. They're talking about an infrastructure package to stimulate the economy should it slow down. And to answer your question, they're also saying, how do we help uh, workers who can't get sick pay. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of people in our economy are contract workers yeah. or work on low-level jobs and if they lose their, if they're sent home because they're sick and they don't have any other means of income, somebody's got to step up and help them. In the Some States, there's also that problem with what happens if you do feel like you need to get tested and who pays for that. Just the other day, Mike Pence was mm -hmm. asked that question in a press yeah. conference and they walked away and that's a big concern. These are expensive tests, expensive health care. Who pays for it in the right. States? So governing is difficult. Yeah, I was and just going to ask you, know, you that. <laughs> I, this to me, it's, it's similar to the post 9-11 situation. It's very similar to SARS because it's a, it's a disease. and, and the balance the government has to strike is, on the one hand, reassuring Canadians that they do have a plan, that they will put the necessary resources behind it, that they need not fear. On the other hand, not creating a sense of panic. We had all of the security advisors, I can see Parliament Hill over your shoulder. We had 100,000 people on Parliament Hill three days after 9-11. Mm -hmm. All the security people said, have it in the cathedral or in the conference center, have it somewhere, but not out in the public. And they wanted us to shut down Parliament Hill. The Prime Minister's reaction was, if we have to shut down Parliament Hill, every business in the country is going to think it has but to shut John, down. So don't over... Don't get people to the point where they're fearing their shadows. They but where do you find that balance? You remember, though, right after that, like within weeks of that um, catastrophic event, right. the government moved very quickly to impose what was essentially a national security budget. And they yes. did some very quick shifting of priorities and said, here's where our money's going to go. Now, I don't know if maybe this government needs to do an economic update as opposed to a budget right away sooner than later and then absorb all the uncertainty in the economy do a fuller budget later but it is possible for federal governments yes. to pivot and focus on priorities and i think that's the sense that i want to hear from the government what is their priority John, right now seem like they're slow mm -hmm. on everything there other governments have been much mm -hmm. far farther or much farther ahead on taking these steps and only this week last week do we get uh, where well, we're setting up a cabinet committee yeah, well, well, you have to admit that's they're slow. And I'm not defending this government. I'm just saying this is not as easy as it sometimes looks. Right. I mean, certainly if, if the minister asked me for advice, I'd say, don't put out a budget. We like to have themes for budgets. They were thinking about a climate change theme. That will that will be a really discordant note. Right. But they could put up put out an economic statement that says this is where we are right now. And oh, by the way, we're allocating X billion dollars to be spent by provinces in the healthcare system yeah. to deal with the right. crisis. That's, right. That's kind of what we That's did. What, what we did post 9/11 is in, I, we, we I, I, did seven billion on security. Yeah, we exactly. didn't exactly know how we were going to spend it all, but the message yeah. was, and, and Canadians were actually quite frightened post 9/11 yeah. about security risks. Yeah. The message was, we're on it now. Business as usual, please. Annie, I, I, I want to bring you in. You were in the States uh, uh, this week mm -hmm. in, in Washington, D.C. How, how is it playing there? Is there a feeling there that things are under control? 
I think it depends who you ask, and I think there's a lot of confusion. I mean, we saw President um, Barack, or sorry, not, wow, Barack Obama, that's old. We saw, <laughs> we saw President Trump talking not too long ago about the coronavirus not being a concern at all, and then there was a number of new cases that came out. Then we saw him the other day pointing the finger at the Obama administration, saying that the reason their response was slow was because there was a policy change in regards to the FDA, which the Obama so administration Obama. now has said, we don't know of any policy change that's doing that. And when you talk to everyday people in the street, some people are obviously concerned. You know, you go into the grocery stores and they don't have toilet paper or hand sanitizer, and there are those measures being taken. But I think there are also a lot of people who think that this is the media that's making it up, that is making this a much bigger concern than it is, and they don't believe that there's any kind of an issue. So, you know, depending on where you go, I think uh, it changes what people believe about how important and how dangerous this virus can be. Yeah, and I guess we're going to be talking about this for a few months ahead. That's all the time so. we have. John Manley, thank you so much. The rest of the scrum will stick around. Coming up, conservative leadership candidate Aaron O'Toole got a big endorsement this week, but is it enough to move the needle? The scrum returns with pollster Shashi Curl. Stay right here with Question Period. Welcome back to Question Period. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's approval rating is sinking fast, plummeting 10 points in the last month as he's attempted to navigate a series of sensitive issues. What's at the heart of his popularity plunge? Do Canadians disagree with how he handled indigenous protests that shut down railway lines across the country, calling for dialogue instead of sending in the police? And do Albertans blame Trudeau for the collapse of a new oil sands project that would have meant thousands of jobs for struggling for a struggling province. Let's bring back the scrum to find out. Annie Bergeron Oliver is back, Tonda McCharles is back, Robert Fife is back, and our special guest this round is the executive director of the Angus Reid Institute, Chachi Curl. Uh, Chachi, let me start with you. So what do you see as the reason for Trudeau's drop in popularity? It has everything to do with the last month and really the way the government has, or depending on your point of view, hasn't handled the issue around the blockades. And the Trudeau government and the Prime Minister himself have really taken it on the chin from both sides. You know, Canada and Canadians are so divided on this issue, Joyce. So what happens is, if you're a Canadian, like, like half of them are, who see this issue through the lens primarily of law and order and the economy, you're angry that the government did not take a harder line and speak more forcefully and move more forcefully to get those blockades down. If you're somebody who sees this through the lens of indigenous rights and climate change the way the other half of the country does, then you're quite upset that those blockades came down and you don't feel like reconciliation has been helped. And as a result, you've got people on the right and the left-hand side of the political spectrum, including a significant segment of liberal voters, by the way, who are not very happy with the way the prime minister's handled this. And that is directly responsible for what we have seen in the last month in terms of his approval numbers. So, so Bob, do you, damned if you do, damned if you don't, I mean, how can he be popular then? Well, it's very hard to be popular when you've got a, almost a month of economic blockades and you really are, it, it's hurt, it had people who were put out on employment, uh, there were layoffs, and then you had people in cities who were disadvantaged because they couldn't get on the GO train. So you didn't make many people very happy about this. So it's quite understandable why his numbers tanked. Uh, but, you know, you can't read too much into this. I mean, it doesn't mean that the Conservatives are going to be elected as a result of this. They don't have a leader yet. Mm -hmm. We don't know who the leader is going to be. And 
actually policies really do matter. As we found out in the last election campaign, the Conservatives should have won that election campaign. They didn't win the election campaign because they didn't have a, a very good policy on, on climate change, in my view. And they're also, their whole position on social conservatism, abortion and gay rights, that kind of killed them. So uh, Justin Trudeau should be worried, but not, he should be able to go to bed at night as well. Do you think that, okay, so, so the blockades are, are sort of behind us anyway for the time being. Do you think his handling or this government's handling of coronavirus will put him back up in the polls? We'll see. That's something that I think is a story still untold, isn't it? Um, the coronavirus is now starting to take hold in the broader Canadian community. Let's see how the system responds to it. Then we'll be able to weigh whether he was act, you know, actively engaged to the extent he needed to be and handled it well. But I think, you know, the government's got to be worried nonetheless, notwithstanding the fact that the Conservatives don't have a leader, that they're ahead is a concern for them. It's a concern for them to be able to also advance their own agenda because they've got some fairly controversial things they want to still achieve, right? Medical assistance and dying changes are coming. Um, they want to do big things on other topics that will I think engage the opposition and so he's got a fight on his hands. He's still in a minority situation. I do think we have to take the numbers with a bit of a grain of salt here. I mean, if you look at it, yes, Mr. Trudeau's approval ratings are down, the Liberals are down as well, but I think for a lot of people being surveyed, it's easy to say you want to change when you don't exactly know what that change would represent. So in oh, this case, on, the Conservatives... I mean, yeah, well, that's why I want to, I, I want to hear Chachi <laughs> okay. because your numbers show the Conservatives leading and they, they don't even have a leader. Exactly. So is this... They, they are our numbers. We do stand by them. I take Annie point though. The point is that people are able to say today that maybe they, there's more Canadians who would vote for the Conservative Party. What do, what do I take from that with them at 34, the Liberals at 26 and, and the NDP at 21? It says to me that a couple of things have happened. First of all, the Conservative base, even though a, a significant segment of the Conservative base is absolutely you know, ticked off and done with their current outgoing leader, Andrew Scheer, they're still standing by the party. So it speaks to the mm -hmm. fact that, you know, you still have 34% of decided voters in this country, as it has ever been, who are locked in conservatives. The party doesn't seem to be able to grow that number, but on the other hand, the party doesn't seem to be losing from that number. On the other hand, you've got the liberals who are now starting to bleed some of that support that they took from the NDP in the election campaign, managed to eke out that minority with a lot of 10-second Liberals who might have been greener NDP voters and those people are sort of migrating back to the party because there is a difference to Annie's point between saying what if and what will you actually do in a ballot in a ballot booth if there was an election tomorrow. So I think if we were in a real campaign situation those numbers might tighten up again. I'm also curious to see what happens when there is an actual conservative leader in seat exactly. because we've heard right. from three of them O'Toole, McKay and Gladue all saying hey guess what if we win we're forcing an election. That's right. And, and, and speaking of the of the race, Aaron O'Toole got a big endorsement this week from Alberta Premier Jason Kenney. Now, will this give his campaign, Tonda, a big boost? Does this matter? Well, look, Jason Kenney uh, carries a lot of weight in the West where um, there are already a significant number of voters who are likely probably not to vote for Peter McKay because he represents the red Tory Eastern Canadian, Central Canadian tradition in the party. Um, but I don't think, I think it does have potential to hurt McKay. Uh, however, most of the polls show that he would be, um, I think, more able to rally support among the broader Canadian public than just the Conservative Party. Well, 
also remember, Jason Kenney was a big supporter of Andrew Scheer, very close to him. Mm -hmm. Campaign He's the godfather him. of one of his children. He, he apparently had, and we, we know he'd worked Ontario yeah. very well. Uh, and, and they brought him into Ontario to see if he could revive the Conservative voters, which had been part of the Stephen Harper coalition. That completely failed. So, uh, look, it's going to certainly help uh, Aaron O'Toole. It brings a lot of life into him, but I'm yeah. not necessarily sure at the end of the day it's going to stop Peter McKay. And I think you also have to ask, is this an endorsement of O'Toole first and foremost, or is it an anti-McKay push? Absolutely. Because we have to remember that Mr. Yeah. McKay did support an Ambrose movement, or Baird, Kenny. and Kenny, sorry, Kenny, yes. Yeah. And and, and Polly, yes, and, <laughs> anybody and that but didn't happen. So it was sort of like an anybody but that's McKay, right. and so yeah. that's also a reason why he decided to support O'Toole. So really, this is a big blow to McKay again, showing the divide in the party and showing that this well-known well, conservative thing, is too, saying is, no. Aaron O'Toole is trying to come across as this newfound right winger, and he isn't. Uh, and it's not believable because he he's always been sort of a moderate conservative. Now he's trying to run way out on the right. And I'm not sure if that is going to translate into votes for him because people are going to say, well, I've never seen you here before uh, fighting for these kind of issues. Um, so I'm not sure how that's going to work out. Chachi, the, there are two front runners. Where will the West Park its vote? With which one? <laughs> Let me pull out my crystal ball. Please do. <laughs> I think, yes. Well, I, look, I think, I think it was Tonda who, who made the point that, you know, Peter McKay overall broadly among an electorate that includes centrists, that, in, that might include more right-leaning liberals, might be somebody more palatable uh, that, that more voters writ large can get behind. But, of course, you've got to win the leadership before you can make your case for the job of prime minister. Look, uh, when it comes to Jason Kenney and this endorsement, chances are because Peter McKay is an Easterner, he is from Nova Scotia, and there has been a continued sense of the West is being left out, particularly Alberta and Saskatchewan, feeling like we are not heard, we are not listened to, we don't have a voice. The lift from Jason Kenney, who's very influential in Western politics, won't hurt Aaron O'Toole. It will certainly help from that perspective. On the other hand, is that going to be enough to countermand or counterbalance uh, a real sense, particularly in Ontario and Quebec, among Conservatives they're saying, honestly, we don't care who wins as long as it's someone who can beat Justin Trudeau. And if we think that that person is Peter McKay or we thought it might have been Ronna Ambrose, of course, she's out of the running. But if it, if it is to be Peter McKay, let's get him in there because it's not so much about a, a left or a, or a center or a right stance within the Conservative Party. It's more about who can beat Justin Trudeau. They're more motivated by the chance to win than they are ultimately by ideology. Jason Kenney and Aaron O'Toole are both from Ontario. Just saying. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> and we had 10 years of Stephen Harper was from Alberta. So, the so there. Yeah. Well, uh, well, that's unfortunately all the time we have. So thank you, Shachi, Annie, Tonda, and Bob. Thanks to all of you for watching. We'll be back here in seven short days.